the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. If entrepreneurs form companies to solve a problem and capitalise on a gap in the market, then it seems shipping's problems are growing exponentially. The recent proliferation of accelerators, incubators and established maritime players all doggedly chasing startups as a testing ground for viable and scalable new business models, well, it all suggests something of an entrepreneurial explosion. This week, the venture development firm Rainmaking launched a maritime innovation advisory network for Southeast Asia. So I invited the company's director for trade and transport, Taran Mahotra, to come onto the podcast and discuss why shipping needs this disruptive kick up the supply chain to get new innovative ideas moving. We talk about whether shipping really is as conservative as the would-be disruptors would have us believe, and why there is still a resistance to change and reluctance to adopt new technological solutions. But I start by asking Taryn why it is now so necessary to connect smart ideas with smart capital in order to accelerate the next phase of the fourth industrial revolution. Not much has changed over the last few decades, right? So the incentive structures have not changed. The ways of doing business has not changed. Information arbitrage still sort of contributes to a massive uh, amount of bottom line. And as the world is changing, right, I mean, even pre-COVID, you saw a sort of massive uptake of digital solutions across various industries. And this was driven by the industries, various industries' needs for enhanced provenance, which the stakeholders were demanding, society at large, enhanced efficiencies. And now shipping is no no longer alien to that, right? So essentially, shipping industry is being faced by similar sort of macro problems where the end consumer most likely is now starting to demand more provenance, whether who owns the ships, what is the carbon footprint, and so on and so forth. So increasingly, when you have such kind of massive problems, and when you look at the tech landscape, an entrepreneur's main drive is to find solutions to some of these biggest problems in the world, right? So uh, what has happened in the last, I would say, half a decade or so, increasing amount of tech solutions or tech entrepreneurs are now looking up to logistics, trade, transport, and within that context, the shipping industry, to try and solve some of the extremely hard-pressed problems, right? And that's why you see industry, which is now increasingly facing a multitude of problems, right? So from a slightly mid to long-term perspective, you have issues around decarbonization. From an immediate perspective, you're having issues around the crew change and crew welfare, right? Because as we all saw, COVID has created almost a humanitarian uh, challenge. That means you are increasingly growing the list of problems which demand solutions which have non-traditional in nature. So you, as an industry, we have to come together and actually encourage the entrepreneurs to increasingly look at the shipping industry for solutions, right? Mm. I, I think it's fair to say that the the industry is characterized as being quite conservative. Uh, a, a negative perception would suggest that we are, uh, as a group, a bunch of regulatory laggards when it comes to moving things along. And no doubt we will tackle that when we start talking about decarbonization. But just before we tackle that specific problem, I just wanted your take on, you know, the mindset with the industry. I mean, uh, skepticism and hesitance remain, I would say, a a fairly dominant mindset within the industry. Do you think that's changing? Are are you getting the sense that the industry is 
um, you know, seeing some of these these shifts catalyze new ways of thinking. Is is there generally more acceptance to the conversations that you are having, bringing together, um, you know, existing big players with entrepreneurial mindsets who perhaps, you know, have new ways of doing things and are probably uncomfortably challenging the status quo. Yeah, so I think shipping industry has always got the far end of the stick, right? Whether we consider it extremely risk averse or an almost a network of a small bunch of people trying to control the bottom lines here. I think the issue is much more far-fetched than this, right? So the challenge within the shipping industry is these the assets that get deployed, these are not cheap assets. And you, mm. the shipping cycles, as we have seen, are usually quite prolonged. We are probably, we were coming out of one cycle, but depending on which segment you look at, we are in some sort of still a depressed state of the market, right? What that means is people who are controlling the industry, their risk appetite for unproven solution is extremely low, right? So, but at the same time, if you look at some of the old new building sprees, you've had massive new building programs almost on speculation being built, right? So from that lens, the risk appetite of the industry to an outsider is really high. Mm. The, the sort of diatomy here is why then the industry doesn't want to adopt or is not doing enough to look at new ways of uh, solving the problem. There's almost a doubt on a non-industry player trying to propose a solution. Now, one of the things that at Grainmaking we are able to quickly catalyze and we also see benefits is the value chains have to come together, right? So it's no longer a zero-sum game. Ultimately, the, the ship owner has to work with the charterer. And there is, of course, uh, quite a bit of uh, discussions around it. Ultimately, if you look at decarbonization, who foots the bill for mm. a new green solution? But here is a take here, right? The consumers, the end consumers who are probably going into a supermarket or a 7-Eleven or what have you, they never thought about shipping as an enabler for getting their goods into the racks of the supermarket, right? But what COVID has done, increasingly populations around the world have started to at least talk about shipping. And humanitarian crisis of the seafarers, you know, have at least brought some sort of visibility to the shipping industry, right? So from that perspective, I think it's a unique opportunity for us to come together with like-minded individuals from the industry and start, you know, literally holding the bull by its horn. And of course, as rainmaking, when we engage with uh, the industry, there are some players who, you know, really are wanting to sort of adopt new solutions and, you know, adopt new ways of doing things. And there are, of course, certain players who are extremely skeptical. But I would say at least the intent to change in the industry is probably much more profound than it was probably five years ago. We as an industry have not yet solved all the problems. I mean, if we had, uh, then probably we, we wouldn't be talking about this. But at least the intent to change and intent to collaborate with players outside the shipping industry, the customers of the industry is increasing. The challenge lies in the fact is how, how much can we catalyze those discussions into actions, right? Well, indeed. Uh, and that is, I, I accept uh, an optimistic take, uh, a more skeptical take would suggest that these changes have been forced upon the shipping industry from outside. And as we speak, we are putting together this year's Lloyd's List ranking of influence within shipping as a, a list of the top 100 people in shipping. And I think it's fair to say, there's no surprises here, that the influence of the traditional ship owner and shipping generally is waning in that list. The, the real influence comes from the cargo interests, comes from the financiers, comes from the Global Maritime Forum set of interests outside of shipping that are arguably moving ahead of regulation, moving ahead of the industry's intent 
uh, and really forcing change upon the industry from outside. Now, that's exciting, and I think uh, it will rightly catalyze change. The question is how much agency the shipping element of this equation actually has in these discussions. And, you know, I bring we, we, we've been skirting around the subjects of decarbonization so far, but I mean, you, you have been uh, operating various sort of funding cycles around this issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're now at a stage where rainmaking is, you know, increasingly focusing in on those solutions out of this process that is going to allow, uh, you know, new leaps forward, I guess, for those companies willing to partner with with these new ideas. I guess the question is, you know, how much of this is a choice? How much of this is um, a shipping uh, firm looking to the mid to, to long term future and saying we have to do things differently uh, versus looking at the current situation and thinking I will wait for somebody else to make the first move, take the risk and uh, ideally find that sort of Goldilocks model, not too soon, not too late, just in just right in the middle. Yeah, so let, let me tackle the first part of the question here from an agency perspective, right? So, of course, you need to have a certain driver where the regulatory or financial pressure to come in, right, for change. And from a shipping industry perspective, if, if things were left to the regulators, of course, it's we've seen in the past few regulations were sort of enacted without really getting into the ground uh, realities, right? Whether it was shipyard slots for, for scrubbers and what have you, I don't want to get into that. But ultimately, whether we like it or not, these stakeholders, the society at large is looking for provenance. That need for provenance is flowing through the financial institutions, right? Which ultimately is looking at shipping as an asset class. Now, if you look at the returns of shipping from an asset class perspective, those have been diminishing, right? So if you have diminishing returns, of course, there would be increased scrutiny, right? And uh, we are talking about increased scrutiny, not just from a financial performance perspective, but the entire business model of shipping. So if you look at the business model of shipping, that's being questioned, and not just from a negative perspective, but ultimately the society at large is asking for a lot more transparency. Now, if you want to take this lens and go into the whole decarbonization challenge, right? So if you look and pick up any trade magazine today, most of the discussion around decarbonization has been around new fuels. And rightly so, because uh, probably if you take the nomenclature, if this is the fourth revolution of propulsion, the uncertainties of the new fuel has got repercussions, not just for the ship owner, but for the charter as well. Mm. And here is the piece of the puzzle, which is quite mind boggling for the outsiders of the industry. A lot of the investments around new fuel is not from the ship owner, right? It has to come from the value chain of the molecule, right? So it could be oil and gas majors, if they decide to invest in a particular molecule, it could be other players, it could be new entrants who have sort of sort of uh, promulgating new fuels, which are non-traditional uh, in many ways. This uncertainty, coupled with the asset life of a ship, right, so anywhere from 15 to 30 years, depending on which ship type, I think it's a very tough problem to solve. So ultimately, we see that one solution, one potential pathway around challenges like decarbonization is to have a portfolio approach. So in a very simple context, you cannot put all eggs into one basket. So if you are an engine manufacturer, ultimately you're seeing the trend going toward flexible engines, right? So because you don't know which fuel uh, uh, that would eventually evolve. From a ship ownership charter perspective, of course, you would have to look at the ship itself, the asset, but there are other ways to also try and make your operations more sort of 
optimal, right? Both from an environmental perspective. But what we at Rainmaking always try and challenge is this is a great opportunity for the industry to go back to the drawing board from mm. a business model perspective, right? So it could be looking at AI solutions on way on the how the charters were fixed and were fixing the vessels, right? Can I look at digital solutions from a provenance perspective where my vessels are placed? So I think this is an opportunity uh, of a lifetime, of course, with its own risk in terms of heavy investments required from a fuel perspective and asset perspective. And again, practical challenges about retrofits of the existing vessels, right? And it gets all the more complicated because 2030 and 2050 is not that far off if you consider the asset line, right? Yes, well, precisely. And, and, and therein lies the dilemma of the transition. I can well believe that, uh, you know, one of your smart brains within the rainmaking family have potential solutions for a zero carbon structure come 2050, but we have to get there and we have to deal with assets that last generally around 20 years. So people looking to replenish a fleet today are doing so in an environment where zero carbon fuel doesn't exist. Uh, so the, the question of future-proofing decisions today in a period of uh, you know huge change where nothing is certain that becomes a big question. And I think that probably explains a lot of the hesitancy you're seeing uh, in terms of uh, new builds. Uh, you know, partly, arguably, that would be down to lack of finance, but uh, I think more so down to the lack of available good decisions to be taken. You know, you're essentially taking the least worst decision in many cases. What Any thoughts in terms of how the industry deals with that sort of future-proofing scenario and, 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 and how that transition pans out? Absolutely. So one of the things that we firmly believe is a portfolio approach. Now, what do I mean by that? So increasingly, when ship owners are thinking about the new building programs, right? So of course, there are certain design constraints, there are certain charters constraints, there are potentially certain financial constraints these days. But one of the things that we really push is to look at emerging solutions from a Horizon 2, Horizon 3 perspective, right? From an innovation Horizon perspective. And to think of an approach where you are able to actually run experiments and syndicate experiments with your customers or the value chains that a ship owner or a charter belongs to ultimately try and de-risk the process of investment, right? So in a very practical term, so if you think about adopting new sort of energy efficiency devices for your vessels, essentially, if I'm a vessel owner today, I shouldn't be looking to try and pilot every single solution that's available out in the market on my own vessels. What I should be doing is essentially even collaborating with some of my competition and sharing notes. So that's an approach of open innovation, right? Where you're able to collaborate in your own value chains. You're able to collaborate with your customers to essentially de-risk the process, right? And these lessons can then sort of flow into, you know, your capital decisions like your fleet renewal programs, yeah? your OPEX decisions in terms of retrofits, your investment decisions. Can you look at maritime tech startups as an asset class, right? So ultimately, if you're a large ship owner, if you're taking exposures in the maritime tech space, you're what you're essentially doing is you're future-proofing your uh, fleets of the future, right? So you're getting exposure to some of the new tech that's coming online. And I think that's an approach to go forward. And increasingly, this is something that is making the industry extremely uncomfortable. But um, we're seeing some really great green shoots and people are willing to collaborate. And why am I saying this is making the industry uncomfortable? Because traditionally, my loss was your win, right? The industry was surviving on information arbitrage. So why should I be sharing uh, my data? 
And on our platform, we, we are quite happy to see our partners, you know, collaborate even with competition, even with charters and ship owners coming together. And I think that is future proofing. That's one of the pathways that industry can look at. Interesting. And yeah, and do you think the industry generally is warming up to this idea of uh, collaboration being the key to unlocking this? It does seem that most of the solutions lie not within the operation, the traditional operations of ships, but in the way in which shipping can integrate itself increasingly with the supply chain, with the cargo interest, with uh, you know the value chain, as you put it. That's not traditionally been the way in which shipping operates. Uh, it does require a mindset shift and it does require new ways of doing business. But presumably it also doesn't offer any distinct advantage to people who have been doing it for many years. There is a sort of democracy in this tectonic shift. It allows new entrants uh, you know, with access to leasing finance models to do the same things because everything is new they, they would be able to do the same things as somebody with you know 150 years worth of uh, generational experience presumably yeah let, let me tackle that in two parts as well right so let me tackle about collaboration within the shipping industry and i think there's a template here uh, what covid sort of brought forward unfortunately was the humanitarian crisis of, of crew welfare and crew change right uh, having trained as a seafarer myself, I, I think it's my duty to bring that up. Mm. But increasingly, you saw that various ship management firms and industry coming together to try and find solution of this problem, right? This is a very basic example. Now, if you go towards decarbonization, right? So industries are, are coming together to try and form collaborative associations, initiatives to try and find the solution because decarbonization is not just a compliance exercise, right? It's not just about complying with yet another IMO regulation. It's mm. about really changing the way of doing things. And that's from an in inter-industry, intra-industry perspective, right? Now, let, let's look at the elephant in the room, right? Collaboration with the customers of the industry. Now, I think that's where it is much more challenging for shipping, right? Because we were probably another procurement exercise for some of the FMCG majors in back in the day, right? Probably a decade ago. Today, now they're sitting up and really making their supply chains more sort of, you know, more increasingly more transparent because their customers are demanding provenance. Mm. They're actually coming into design uh, decisions for their own supply chains. So it's not just about, you know, thinking about the financial now trying to finance the ship. It's more about the end users of the ships coming into play. And I think that for that to happen, the industry has to speak with one voice. Mm. Uh, as shipping, we need to be, you know, coming together and not be, I mean, we all saw what happened at GMF. There were different sort of views around how decarbonization can be, you know, sorted out. It could be a regional play. It could be an international play. I don't want to get into that. But ultimately, when dealing with the customers of the industry, right, the external stakeholders, shipping should have a common minimum understanding, right? What is it that we are ultimately doing? We are an enabler of global trade. So it's in the interest for the wider sort of supply chains to sit up and really engage with the industry. And I think COVID has actually accelerated some of those discussions and decisions, right, where we shouldn't let sort of slip this opportunity from our hands. Interesting. Um, it's that time of year where, of course, everybody is uh, assessing a very different and difficult year, but also looking forward to what happens next. Uh, there is at least some optimism in the market now that we are hearing some positive news that uh, a vaccine is, is is coming through the pipeline, at least. Um, 
I'll put you on the spot and uh, and ask you to make a you know a prediction. How do how do you think this process of innovation, decarbonisation, and new thinking is going to play out next year? Yeah, I think it's a million dollar question, right? Uh, I think increasingly you would see more from our perspective, you would see more collaboration happening even at an execution level. So what do I mean by that? Whether the ship owners or charters like it or not, they would be forced into running these experiments of POCs or a syndicated approach because the cost for being alone is really sort of high. So if you are a lone standing individual company, it doesn't really make sense for you to not engage, right? So that is a tectonic shift that I increasingly believe would happen in shipping in 2021. Uh, whether the vaccine comes or not, I think uh, we are all wishing we had a crystal ball and hopefully we have the vaccine. But I think once we are sort of probably slightly ahead of the COVID curve in terms of a recovery path, you would see shipping actually, um, probably I'm an too optimistic approach here, you would see shipping actually coming together and really sort of collaborating with each other. We like optimism on this podcast. It's it's a rarity, but we embrace it where we find it. So um, thank you, uh, Tara Mahotra, Director of Trade and Transport at Rainmaking, uh, for joining this week's podcast. Thank you so much, Richard.